0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 119. We'll be in Psalm 119, verses 49 to 56 this morning. Psalm 119, let's begin reading in verse 49. There the word of the Lord says, Remember the word to your servant in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort in my affliction, that your word has revived me. The arrogant utterly deride me, yet I do not turn aside from your law. I have remembered your ordinances from of old, O Lord, and comfort myself. Burning indignation has seized me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Your statutes are my songs in the house of my pilgrimage. O Lord, I remember your name in the night and keep your law. This has become mine, that I observe your precepts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you, Lord, today asking, Lord, that you would teach us, Lord, the way of your statutes, Lord, that we might observe them to the very end of our life. Lord, give us understanding. Lord, open our eyes that we might behold, Lord, wonderful things from your law. Lord, we pray that this would be ours. Lord, that this is the possession. Lord, the gift that you would grant to us today. Lord, obedience, faithfulness to you. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, knowing God through his word should be the aim for all Christians, right? This is the life that God has called us. It is the life of knowing God. It says in John 17:3, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Right? The children of God enter into the enjoyment of eternal life even now in this present world, in this present life. And we do this through the living and abiding word of God. We come to know God now through his word. Yet sadly, we live in an age and in a generation where there are very few who want to know God. There are many people who are very zealous, even many who are very zealous in a Christian sense, many who have a zeal for God but not according to knowledge. They have a blind, misguided zeal according to their own minds, according to their own ideas of God, but not according to God as he is revealed in the true interpretation of the Bible. They have zeal for God that comes from their own wisdom, zeal for Jesus according to their own understanding, but not zeal for the true God or the true Jesus as revealed in the Holy Scriptures. And this is plain and obvious because they neglect the Bible. They neglect the Word of God. And if a person neglects God's Word, no matter what they say about their love of God, about how they want to know God, about their zeal for God, you know that they're lying. They're not telling you the truth. It says in Hosea chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel. For the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land, because there is no faithfulness or kindness Or knowledge of God in the land. Then in Hosea four verse six it says, "My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also will reject you from being my priest. Since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children." There, the prophet Hosea exclaims that in his day there's no knowledge of God in the land, right? And this is the land of Israel. We're not talking about the land of Egypt or the land of Assyria, but the land of Israel, those who have the oracles of God entrusted to them. And yet, he says, there's no knowledge of God in the land. And the people are destroyed because of their lack of knowledge. The people have rejected the true knowledge of God. And what, according to Hosea, is the source of this rejection of the knowledge of God? How did this turn of events come about? He says, Since you have forgotten the law of your God, when God's word is neglected, where the word of the Lord is forgotten, there, the knowledge of God is extinguished because the knowledge of God and the word of God always go hand in hand. And may we never forget this truth, right? Do we want eternal life? Then we must know God. Do we want to know God? then we must read his word. We must come to know God through his word. If we want fellowship with God the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ, then we must seek it through the word of Christ. This is how we come to know the Lord. And this is what Psalm 119 is teaching us from beginning to end, that we must know God through his word. So let's turn to Psalm 119, verse 49. It says there, "'Remember the word to your servant.'" in which you have made me hope. Here, he says, remember the word to your servant, in which you have made me hope. God's word offers many promises, many promises to the slaves of God that cause them to have hope in this present life, right? Do we not entertain a hope of eternal life with God? We have the hope of salvation, complete, ultimate salvation. We have the hope of being delivered from all of our enemies, of being delivered from this present evil age. All of these are given to us in the form of promises so that the word of God gives hope to the servants of God. And here he's calling on God. He wants God to remember these promises. Remember these promises that have caused me to have hope in this present life. He greatly desires that God would remember them, that he would act upon them, that he would fulfill his word to his servant. Now, of course, in saying this, he's not saying that God has forgotten his promises that somehow these have slipped out of the mind of God, and now it's up to the prophet to jar the memory of God so that God will be reminded of what he promised and then will follow through with what he said that he would do. Of course, this is not the way that he means this. When he says remember, he's not saying that God can forget, but he's asking God to act upon the promises that God full well knows and that he knows that God will fulfill. Numbers 23:19. Numbers 23, in verse 19, it says there, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? Right? God is not a man that he should ever lie, and God does not repent. Whatever God says, he will surely do it. Right, He will bring it about. Whatever he has promised, he will fulfill. Also in Romans chapter 9, in Romans chapter 9 and verse 6, it says, It is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. There, the word of God does not fail. It cannot fail because God is the one who brings it about and God will never forget his word and God always has the power to do what he has promised. He has sworn to do it and he will surely bring it about in due time. God will never forget the promises that he has made to his servants. So the prophet is not saying this for God's sake. He's not bringing these things to God's attention because they have slipped out of the mind of God, right? Which is important for us to remember that when we are praying to God, we are not informing God. We're not bringing to his attention things that he doesn't already know. God already knows beforehand what we need, right? What we need to ask of him. He's completely aware of everything that is taking place in our life. This is why in Matthew chapter 6, In Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, Jesus warns us against meaningless repetition that people often use because they think the longer their prayer, the more words they use, the more likelihood that God's going to answer them, that they're going to get God. To answer them because if you just keep on talking, you know, he'll finally answer you just to get you to shut up. But this isn't the case at all. Matthew chapter 6, verse 7 says, when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. God already knows what we need before we even ask him. Before a word is even on our lips, he already knows it according to Psalm 139. So if God cannot forget his promise, and if God already knows what we need before he asks him, then for whose benefit is the prophet praying? For whose benefit is it that we pray for God to remember his promises? It's for our benefit, right? It is for our sake. Because when we are praying to God, asking him to remember, what does it cause us to do? It causes us to remember the promises of God. When we're begging God to act upon his promises, it reminds us that God cannot lie, that it is impossible that God will fail to fulfill his promises to his servants. It calls into our mind into our attention the promises of God, and then it brings forward to us that we're praying not to a false God who cannot answer prayer, but we're praying to the true God who cannot lie and who has the power to bring it about. The promise which caused us to hope in the past will then cause us to hope again and again and again in the present when we ask God to remember his great promises. It brings it into our mind and it brings into our mind the character and nature of God and it gives us greater confidence that God will surely fulfill his word to his servant. It is for our sake, it is for our benefits. Hebrews chapter 11, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And then verse 6, Without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. It is the assurance of things hoped for, right? Because we haven't received it yet. Conviction of things not seen, things that we have not entered into the full possession of, right? We have not entered into the full possession of our salvation. We're hoping for it, we want it, and faith has confidence that God will give to us what he has promised, because the fulfillment of it is dependent not on us, but it is dependent upon the character and nature of God. And God cannot lie, and God will always fulfill his word. Now in this life, it appears to us at times that God is not going to fulfill his promises. It appears to us that God is slow to fulfill his promises. And this leads to discouragement. We get discouraged, we get downcast. But when we're living by faith, when we have the promises of God before us and we have the nature of God before us, then it lifts up our spirits. It revives us, it encourages us. We have our hope renewed that God will in due time fulfill his word to his servant. It reminds us, as it says in 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9, that God is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness. God is not slow. It may seem slow to you from your vantage point, but it's not slow to God. And he will surely bring it about. Or as it says in 1 Thessalonians 5.24, Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. God is faithful, and he will bring it to pass. Whatever he has promised, this is what he will do for his people. And that's what the prophet is saying here. Remember your word in which you have made me hope. You made me hope in this. You are the one who gave this to me. Remember it, bring it about, and let me see your faithfulness. Verse 50. This is my comfort in my affliction, that your word has revived me. In this life, we experience many afflictions, many Various afflictions, hardships, sufferings, persecutions, calamities, whatever you want to call them, the Bible uses many different words to describe the sufferings that we will experience in the Christian life. Remember Acts fourteen twenty-two. there the apostle strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God we must go through many tribulations to enter the kingdom of God in this life we will have tribulations our own sin is a tribulation that we have to overcome the sins of others natural disasters hard circumstances right the death of those that we love right all of these things will happen to us in different ways throughout this life and we have to endure them and enter into the kingdom of God well, when these things happen, when these afflictions come upon us, what should we do? What should we do? Where do we go during afflictions for comfort, for hope, for strength in this present life? Well, where does he go? The word of God. The word of God brings him comfort and hope during his afflictions. It is the word of God that revived him during his hardship. He is not a double-minded man. He's not someone who is so unstable that whenever he goes through afflictions, it causes him to question and doubt the love of God for him, or that God is going to do what he promised. He doesn't go to unbelievers for their wisdom during affliction. He doesn't turn to drugs or to alcohol or to sex or to something like that in order to overcome affliction. He doesn't check out and indulge in hobbies and recreation to take his mind off of what he's going through. He goes to the word of God, and it is the word of the Lord that is the source of comfort and strength for him. It says in 1 John 5:4, whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Our faith, and faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, Romans 10, 17. It is our faith in the word of God that gives us the victory, the ability to overcome this world, including the afflictions and tribulations that we face. face. It is faith in the word of God. And here he says, it revives us. It is what revives us. The word of God, he says, has revived me. When we go through the affliction, we are experiencing a kind of death in this life, a kind of decay, a difficulty, a hardship, right? We are downcast, right? Our soul is troubled during those times. But then we go to the word of God and we see the very great promises of God. We learn there that these are light momentary afflictions. We learn, as the apostle says in Romans chapter 8, that I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. We see those types of things, and what does it do? It gives us the right perspectives. It causes us to look at our afflictions in the light of eternity to give us this right perspective, and then it revives us, and it gives us strength during this time. We will have our harsh circumstances, and the word of God is given to comfort us and to revive us during these difficulties. Psalm 119, verse 51, the arrogant utterly deride me, yet I do not turn aside from your law. Here he mentions a specific type of affliction, persecution, persecution that comes from the arrogant. He says the arrogant utterly deride me. These are proud persons who trust not in the wisdom of God, but they trust in their own wisdom that comes from their own mind. Haughty, smug men who are confident in their own beliefs as opposed to the word of God, right? That's the contrast being made here. This is why they deride him. His hope is in the word of God. He's not trusting in his own wisdom. He's like uh, our memory verse from last month, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your paths straight. He trusts in the wisdom of God, but the arrogant reject the wisdom of God and they trust in their own wisdom. And as a result, they scoff at Him, they mock Him, they ridicule Him, they deride Him because they think that the wisdom of God found in the Word of God, they find it to be very foolish. It's foolish, it's offensive, it is detestable to them, and they rely instead on their own wisdom or the wisdom of this world, the wisdom that comes from the world, the flesh, and the devil. And this is why they deride him. And here he's describing an arrogant man. This is true arrogance. This is what a truly proud man is. Someone who rejects the word of God And elevates his own ideas, his own opinions above the Word of God. That is the ultimate root and source of all pride and all arrogance. It is a rejection of the Word of God. Isaiah chapter 66. And we have to understand this because many times we think of an arrogant person as, you know, just a cocky, Uh, punk, you know, which those people are arrogant as well, but when we see the soft-spoken individual here or there, but the soft-spoken person who is contradicting the Bible is an arrogant person, even though they may pretend to be very gracious, to be very open-minded. If they are rejecting the Bible, they are an arrogant person, no matter what people may say about them. Isaiah 66 verses 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house that you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But this is the one I will look to, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. There, the humble man is the one who properly recognizes the authority of God, that God is in heaven And the earth is his footstool and he belongs on the earth. God is the ultimate source of authority and wisdom. And therefore, whatever God says, he's going to tremble at it. He's trembling at the word of God because it's coming from the Lord. This is the humble man. One of the characteristics of the humble man is trembling before the word of God. Well, if humility is trembling before the word of God, and pride is the opposite of humility, then what is true of the proud man? He does not tremble at the word of God, but on the contrary, he has no problem contradicting the word of God, speaking against the word of God, elevating and touting his own wisdom as superior to the word of God, blaspheming the word of God, rejecting the truths found in the word of God. This is an arrogant man. This is a proud and a smug man who does these things. Now I say this because oftentimes today, you'll be accused of arrogance if you have conviction about the Bible and you are unwilling to compromise those convictions, unwilling to compromise on the truths, the doctrines, the commandments found in the Bible. So for example, take the doctrine of election. If we teach the doctrine of election, And we teach against the false doctrine of free will because both of those two cannot be, they cannot both be true at the same time. One is true and the other one is false. They cannot be true equally at the same time. If we claim that the Bible teaches election and the Bible rejects free will and we say this is what the word of the Lord says, what will people accuse us of being? They'll say, you're very arrogant. You're a know-it-all. You think you know everything. And if people don't agree with you on everything, then you think they're all going to hell. Or say we teach the doctrine of creation, that we teach that the Word of God says that God created the world in six literal days and that the earth is a young earth, about 6,000 years old, according to the genealogies that are found in the Bible. And if we teach that and say this is what the Bible says and this teaching is incompatible with evolution or any uh, mixture of evolution with the Bible and Christianity, what will people say? They'll say, you're very arrogant. You're a very arrogant man because you think that you know everything and that everyone else is wrong. And what about this person, especially this celebrity pastor? He believes in evolution, like Tim Keller. He believes in evolution and that you can have an old earth and this and that. And are you saying that you're better than him? Are you saying that you're smarter than him? Are you saying that you're saved and he's not? These are the types of things that people will say. Because we say that this is what the Bible teaches, And this is clear, and then this is what everyone should believe. This is what the Word of God says. You will be accused of being arrogant, of being a know-it-all, of being ungracious. But is this arrogance? Is this true arrogance? Having an unwavering, unflinching confidence in the Word of God, that is not arrogance, but rather that is the result of true humility, Because if we are trembling before the word of God, then how can I tell people that it doesn't matter what you believe? If I'm trembling before the word of God, how can I have a take it or leave it approach to this doctrine or to this commandment or to any part of the Bible? On the contrary, it is those who promote relativism. It is those who make room for many contradictory interpretations who say that you can believe it this way or that way or any number of ways, a hundred different ways if you want. They give the impression that they are very gracious, that they are very humble, that they are accommodating to all people. But in reality, those who promote this mentality are actually very arrogant people. They are the arrogant ones. And who are they arrogant against? They're arrogant against God. Ultimately, they are arrogant against the Lord because on whose authority do they make these claims? Who told them that the doctrine of election was not essential? Who told them that it doesn't matter if you believe in a young earth or an old earth? It doesn't matter if you believe in six literal days or if you believe in six figurative days that are actually billions of years old. Who told them that the 10 commandments don't have to be obeyed today, which is another thing that people like to throw out. Where do they get this? Does it come from the Bible? And the answer is no. So then if it doesn't come from the Bible, then where does it come from? It comes from their own mind, their own arrogance, their pride, that they depend on their own mind and they don't depend on the word of God. That's what he's dealing with here. The arrogant, they deride him because he won't compromise on the Bible. He's not going to make room for all these various interpretations and that you just live however you want and I'll live however I want and in the end, we're all going to make it to heaven one day. He's not doing that. He's saying, no, this is what the Bible says. This is the way that we ought to live and the arrogant who reject the word of God are deriding him as a result of these things. And notice here in Psalm 119, he calls them arrogant. He calls them according to their sin. Don't people find that offensive if you tell them that they're arrogant? If you say to someone, you're a very arrogant man, won't most people be offended at that? But isn't that what he calls them? He calls them according to their sin. We should not mislabel people. We should not mislabel sinners. If they're committing the sin, then this is what they are. He doesn't mislabel him. He's not softening the sting of sin. He doesn't say, well, I know you people mean well. You're good intention. You have a good heart. You're sincere. I just disagree with you here and there. Or you're just confused or, well, they, they just haven't been taught or they need to grow. He doesn't do that. Whatever excuses people use to justify the sins of men. If a man is rejecting the word of God, if he is deriding those who hold to the word of God, the one who is practicing true righteousness, then that is an arrogant man. Notice as well, what does this arrogant man do? He utterly derides him. He utterly derides him. Utterly, not mildly, not a little here and a little there. Utter derision, utter detestation for the righteous man. This is true, especially the arrogant among the so-called Christians. Those who claim to be Christians, like the Pharisees in Jesus' day, will have more tolerance... They'll show more grace, they'll have more affinity toward an evolutionist, toward a homosexual, toward a Roman Catholic, toward a Mormon, toward an atheist, than they will toward a true Christian who refuses to compromise on the word of God. I had a former deacon at this church who spoke more highly of Roman Catholics and Mormons than he did of me, because I believed in the doctrine of election, He would sooner say a Roman Catholic is going to heaven than I was going to heaven because we believed and taught the doctrine of election. This is the lot of the righteous in this life. This is what they will receive from the hands of arrogant men, utter derision. Well, when that happens, what do we have to do? Notice what he says, yet. He says, yet, I do not turn aside from your law. I'm not going to turn aside from your law, even in the presence of persecution. Even when the arrogant are utterly deriding me, I'm not going to say, you know, uh, this is too much. I can't take it. I can't handle this. Maybe they're right. Maybe I should just tone it down a little bit. Maybe I should soften it. I can compromise here and there. No, he says, no, I'm not going to do that at all. They may reject me, they may deride me, but I'm not going to abandon my faith. I'm not going to abandon my conviction when I face a little bit of persecution. But on the contrary, I'm going to follow the law of God. I will not turn aside. I'm not going to forsake the law of God. On the contrary, I'm going to hold fast to my integrity. I'm going to hold fast to my confidence in God's word firm until the very end. This is the way that we have to be. Even when we face persecution, we cannot deny our convictions and what the Word of God says. Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6. See, when this happens, we'll be tempted. We'll be tempted to turn aside. Just a little here, a little there. Just a little compromise here or there, but we can't be like this. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6 says, but Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Then also chapter three, verse 12 says, take care, brethren, that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. We have to hold fast our confidence, our boast, our hope, our assurance until the very end. We cannot turn aside here or there. Also, he's not going to turn aside from the law in his response to the arrogant people. When the arrogant utterly deride him, They're going to get into the mud. They're going to start slinging mud at him, but he's not going to respond in like manner. He's not going to sling back at at them. This is what they do. They give us evil, but we cannot repay their evil with evil. But rather, our response to the arrogant must be governed and regulated by the law of God. So there are many temptations we have to overcome in this. The one temptation is to abandon the law, and the other temptation is to respond to them in a sinful way. We can't do either of them. That's not what he's doing. He's not going to forget the law of God. He's going to do what God requires. When they revile us, we cannot revile in return. When they lash out at anger at us, we're going to want to lash back at them, but we can't do that. When they do evil to us, we're going to want to repay with evil. But this we cannot do. Instead, we must follow The law of God. Whatever the situation calls for, that's what we have to do. If it calls for us to speak up, then we need to speak up. If it calls for us to be silent, then we need to be silent. If it calls for us to walk away, then we have to walk away. If it calls for us to turn the other cheek, then we turn the other cheek. If it calls for us to do good to those who persecute us, then we have to do good to those who persecute us. We cannot turn aside from the law of God. We have to let the law of God rule us in what it is that we are doing, even in the way we respond to the arrogant who will utterly deride us. Psalm 119 verse 52 says, I have remembered your ordinances from of old, O Lord, and comfort myself. Here he says he remembers God's ordinances from of old. Whatever God has said in the former times, in past times, he's remembering these things. He's looking, he's reading the Bible, he's seeing how it is that God dealt with the faithful in past generations, and this is going to bolster his faith. It's going to give him confidence that just as God did it for them, he's also going to do it for him. And here, from the perspective of David, at this point, he's talking about the books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, Joshua, Judges, and perhaps the book of Job. He goes to the Word of God. He remembers the ordinances of God from of old. He sees how God's promises, how God's faithfulness was proven to be true in the life of the righteous in former generations. And then he uses this to bolster his faith, to comfort himself during his own sojourning, during the time of his pilgrimage. Whatever God said in the past, it always proves true. It always comes about without any exceptions. Notice Joshua 21. Joshua 21 verses 43 to 45. This is what Joshua told the people at the end of his life. And the purpose of it was to build up their faith. Because just as God did it in previous days, he will continue to do it for all generations. Joshua 21:43 says the Lord God gave Israel all the land which he had sworn to give to their fathers. And they possessed it and lived in it. And the Lord gave them rest on every side according to all that he had sworn to their fathers. And no one of all their enemies stood before them. And the Lord gave all their enemies into their hand. Not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed, all came to pass. There, he says, not one, not one of the good promises of God failed. Not one of them fell to the ground and God did not fulfill. All of them came to pass. God did not forget one of them. Every last single promise came to pass. Now, for whose benefit is that? It's for our benefit. Isn't that why Joshua is bringing this to their attention? That's the same as the prophet in Psalm 119. That's why he's remembering God's ordinances of old. He's remembering what God did in former times. We even sang about this from Psalm 99 this morning. He brings up Moses. He brought up Aaron. He brought up Samuel. They were faithful to God. They kept your word. And you answered them. They called on you. You answered them. You delivered them. You forgave their sins. You did this for them. Well, if God did it for them, he'll do it for us as well. If we have the same faith as Moses and Aaron and Samuel. Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15, verse four. Romans 15, verse four says, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Whatever was written in earlier times. That's what he's doing here. Recalling your ordinances from of old. Whatever you did in earlier times, he knows that that was written not just for the sake of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, It's written for his benefit on whom the word of God has come. He's going to the past to see God's faithfulness fulfilled in the lives of others. And this gives him comfort while he patiently waits for God to fulfill his promises to him. God did it for them. He will do it for us. God did not fail them. He will not fail us. They persevered, I can persevere. They waited patiently for God, I must wait patiently for God, and in due time, God will come to my aid. God helped Abraham. He helped Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. He helped Moses and Joshua and the judges. He helped the prophet David. He delivered them from all of their troubles. He came to their aid. He will do the same for us. He did it for them, he will do it again. This is the comfort in the midst of our afflictions. That in due time, just as God delivered them, he also will deliver us from all of our troubles. Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, verse 18 to 25. This is the connection he's making with Abraham. Romans 4, 18. Says, in hope against hope he believed, so that he might become a father of many nations, according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Right, the words "it were credited to him were not written for his sake alone, but also for our sake. Because if we share in the faith of Abraham, then what God did for him, he will also do for us. This is what the prophet is doing here. I have remembered your ordinances, he says, of old, and I comfort myself. He comforts himself by seeing what God has done in the past. Verse 53. Burning indignation has seized me because of the wicked who forsake your law. When he sees the wicked forsaking the law of God, Rejecting the law of God, breaking the holy law of God. He is not indifferent to these things. He's not tempted to join in with them. He detests it, right? He hates it. He hates evil that is around him. And when he sees people breaking the law of God, he has burning indignation against them, against the wicked, because they forsake the law of God. And is this a sin? Is he sinning in doing this? No, absolutely not. There is a place for legitimate, God-given, righteous anger, righteous burning indignation against sin and against those who commit sin. Because he doesn't just say that I have burning indignation against the breaking of your law. It's burning indignation against who? Because of the wicked who forsake your law. It's against them because they are the ones forsaking the law of God. Notice even in Psalm 119. Psalm 119, verse 104. From your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Also, 128. Therefore I esteem right all of your precepts concerning everything. I hate every false way. Psalm 150, uh, verse 158. I behold the treacherous and loathe them because they do not keep your word. Then, verse 163. I hate and despise falsehood, but I love your law. Is it clear that he hates falsehood? He hates lawbreaking? He hates it when people are sinning against God? He's not indifferent to these things. He's not cavalier in his approach to sin. He hates it. He has burning indignation whenever the wicked forsake the law of the Lord. And this was true even of our Lord Jesus Christ, that Jesus had burning indignation. It even says that Jesus had anger in Mark chapter 3. In Mark chapter 3, verse 5. Mark chapter 3, verse 5. This at the unbelief. It says, after looking around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. There, Jesus looking at them, it says, with anger, grieved at the hardness of their heart. He had both grief because of the hardness of their heart, but also he had anger. Also, what about John chapter 2, when Jesus made a scourge of cords and drove out those who were corrupting the temple, overthrowing the tables? Do you think Jesus was grinning like a possum? whenever he was doing this, that he had a big smile on his face and was speaking softly and tenderly, whispering in their ears as he was doing this to them? Of course not. He was angry. He had righteous indignation. That is what prompted him. Zeal for the house of God prompted him to do this. In Acts chapter 17, verse 16, it says that the apostle Paul, his spirit was provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. His spirit was provoked, right? Provoke. If you provoke someone, he's, you're provoking them, right, to respond to this. And this is what happened to him. Also in Exodus chapter 11, verse 8, it says that Moses, the prophet, went out from Pharaoh's presence hot with anger. He went out from him in hot anger because of Pharaoh's obstinance to the word of God. So there is a place Not only is there a place for it, there is an expectation. Because this is a command from the Lord. There is a command to have burning indignation against those who break the law of God. Because this burning indignation isn't coming from himself. It's coming from the Spirit of Christ within him. And if the Spirit of Christ is in us, and the Spirit sees this taking place, then we also will have burning indignation against the wicked who break the law of God. This is the righteous anger that comes from the spirit. Now, of course, there is sinful anger that comes from the flesh. This anger does not produce the righteousness of God, according to James chapter 1. But we're not talking about the anger of man. We're talking about the anger of God, the anger of the spirit of God within us that does produce the righteousness of God. Verse 54, your statutes are my song in the house of my pilgrimage. Here are the laws of God, God's commandments, God's statutes, God's rules. They are songs for him in the house of his pilgrimage. And again, when he's writing this, we're talking about the law of Moses, Joshua, Judges, perhaps Job. These he turns into songs because he has so much delight in the word of God. Isn't this what people do? Don't they turn into songs those things that they have great joy in, those things that they delight in. This is what he's doing. The statutes of God put a song in his heart and a song on his lips. And he's not singing the blues. This isn't the blues. He's happy about this. He's rejoicing in these things. This is a song of joy, a song of rejoicing when he learns the righteousness found in the statutes of God. So in the previous verse, The law of God produced anger in him when he considers how it is that the wicked break it. But here, the law of God produces joy in him when he considers how righteous it is, how good it is, how beneficial it is for his own well-being, how it promotes his goodness and his peace. Both joy and anger coming from the same source, from the very law of God. And notice as well, he says, it is in the house of his pilgrimage. This is as we read earlier in Psalm 119, verse 19. I am a stranger in the earth. A stranger, an alien, a pilgrim, a sojourner on the earth. Because his true citizenship is where? It's in heaven, right? Where, where God is, where Christ is. He belongs in heaven with the Lord. This is his ultimate final resting place. That is where it will be. And now he is a pilgrim making his way to his eternal dwelling." And he is a pilgrim on the earth who does not belong. And during the time of his pilgrimage, his hope is in heaven, not in the temporal, fading, transient things of this earth. And so he wants a song on his lips that reflects his hope, that reflects his homeland, where it is that he belongs. He doesn't want to sing like the people of this earth, who sing of their lovers, They sing of their pleasures, their comforts, their joys. They sing of drink. They sing of their money, whatever it is that occupies the time and the attention of sinful men. Well, his heart is taken up with eternal heavenly things. So he wants a song on his lips that shows where his heart resides. And where is the one thing, the one place on this earth that we can go to that transcends this present life? Where can we in this life find a little slice of heaven, something eternal, something unfading, something that will endure through the day of judgment? It's the word of God. Isn't it the word of God? Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. The word of God is a source of eternality even here in this present life. And that is why he goes to the word of God. That is why it is the song on his lips during the time of his pilgrimage, because it reminds him of the eternal life that he's hoping for, that he wants to enjoy with God forever. And this is true for all of God's children. We are all strangers and aliens on this earth. We are all pilgrims in the house of the Lord. So we must have the word of God on our lips. It must be the song that is in our heart that reminds us that our ultimate hope is not in this world. What does this world have to offer us? But zero, yeah, death, misery, decay, nothing. Our ultimate hope is in the life to come. Verse 55, Psalm 119, verse 55. O Lord, I remember your name in the night and keep your law. Here, even in the night, when no one is looking, when no one sees him, when he's hidden by the cover of darkness, when no one is around, even there, he remembers the name of the Lord and he keeps the law of God. He remembers God's name and he remembers that he is called by the name of the Lord, that he belongs to God. Are we not children of God? We belong to God. We do not belong to ourselves. He is a slave of Christ and he is to be obedient to his master at all times. In the daytime, in the nighttime, in the morning, in the evening. Isn't a slave bound to the will of his master at all times? An employee who goes to work, he's bound to do the will of his employer while he is at work. But whenever he leaves the job, whenever he checks out, and he goes home, then it's his own time. He's not bound to do the work of his employer. But a slave, a slave is a slave 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So whether it's during the day or whether it's during the night, the slave is bound to do the will of his master, to do those things that are pleasing to him. He doesn't get a day off. He doesn't get any time off. He doesn't have a moment for himself, but his whole life, is devoted to doing the will of his master, whether that be in the daytime or whether that be in the nighttime. Is the Lord God only of the day? Is he not also the God of the night as well? And are we slaves to God only during the day? Are we not slaves to God even in the dark of night? At all times we are slaves to God, so when should we obey God? We should obey God at all times. That's what the prophet means here. This is what he's saying about himself. He desires to be obedient to God even in the night. It's harder to obey God in the night because usually this is when people commit sins. It is more common for people to commit commit sins, not that people don't sin during the day, they'll sin whenever they can, but typically people feel more freedom to commit their sins in the nighttime. Romans chapter 13 Romans chapter 13, verse 11. Romans 13, verse 11. Do this, knowing the time, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. We are children of the light. We are to live in the daytime, right? In terms of our spiritual life, in terms of our obedience to God, the darkness is gone, the day has come. So we have to put on the armor of light and we have to live properly at all times, whether it be the daytime or the night. People want to get drunk at night. They want to commit immorality at night. Thieves want to break in at night. The murderer wants to murder in the cover of darkness. But the night does not lead the Christian to sin against God because he wants to obey God at all times, knowing, as it says in Proverbs 15, verse 3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place watching the evil and the good. Even the darkness is not dark to the Lord. He sees everything. And that's what he knows. He has a proper understanding of God. So he remembers God's name in the night and his remembrance of the name of God and the character of God causes him to keep the law of God even in the night. Then verse 56. This has become mine that I observe your precepts. He says, this is mine. All that matters to me, all that I want to be true of me, all that I want to possess, all that I want to value in this life is to observe your precepts. This is what I want to be known for. I don't want to be known for riches. I don't want to be known as a man of, of fame, of a celebrity, of someone who's popular. I don't care about any of those things. All the things that people love, all the things that they cherish, all the things that they look to to give them notoriety and standing in this life, he doesn't care about any of those things. All he wants to be true of him is to observe the precepts to God, to be faithful to God, to obey God, to be an obedient, faithful servant of Christ. He's not looking for the notoriety of men. He's not looking for the praise of men. But with humility of faith, he's only concerned with doing the will of God. This is what he wants from God. This is what he asks for God to give him. Make this mine. Make this true of me that I observe your precepts. Isn't this the attitude that we should have as well? Isn't this what we should want and what we should ask from the Lord? Lord, give me an obedient heart. All I want from you, all I ask of you is to make me walk in the pathway of your commandments. May God grant to us such a heart. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we come to you, Lord, asking that, Lord, this would be true of us and that, Lord, you would give to us as our own possession. Lord, that what would define our life is that we observe your precepts. Lord, that we are faithful to you, that we are obedient to you. Lord, that we want to do your will at all times. Lord, give us this burning desire for your word. Lord, to know your word. Lord, not so that we might have some mere knowledge of of these things, but Lord, that we might keep it. Lord, that we might observe it, that we might walk in the pathway of your commandments. Lord, that we might be faithful to you. Lord, we pray that we would be those who tremble at your word, who are contrite and lowly in spirit, and Lord, who put no confidence in the flesh, Lord, no confidence in our own wisdom, but who rest solely upon your wisdom, the wisdom of God found in the person and work of Christ. Lord, may we never trust anything that comes from this world, or, Lord, anything that rises up from our own flesh. But rather, Lord, may our confidence be found in your word alone. And, Lord, anything that contradicts it, Lord, may we reject it, may we detest it. Lord, may we have burning indignation against it, Lord, because it is a rejection of your word. Lord, even in the night, we pray that we would be obedient to you. Lord, in the daytime, in the night, Lord, when people are around, when we are by ourselves, Lord, whenever it is, Lord, what we desire is to be faithful to you, Lord, to keep and to walk in your ways, Lord, to obey your commandments. Lord, give us such a heart, Lord, to know you, and Lord, such a heart to obey you. Lord, enlarge our hearts, Lord, cause it, Lord, to abound more and more with love for you, Lord, to have a greater desire for holiness, and for righteousness. Lord, we know that without your Spirit, we can do none of these things. And so, Lord, we pray, Lord, that you would remember your word to us. Lord, remember your promises that you've given to us. Lord, that cause us to have comfort, Lord, even from the very beginning of our salvation. Lord, it is the hope of eternal life, the hope of having all of our sins forgiven, and Lord, to be delivered and set free completely from sin. Lord, this is what we desire so much. And Lord, we pray that you would help us see this in greater measure, Lord, throughout the time of our pilgrimage. Lord, that you would grant to us greater sanctification, Lord, greater holiness, Lord, give to us greater faith, Lord, that we might be more faithful to you today than we were yesterday and that this might increase, Lord, year after year, throughout the time of our sojourning. So, Lord, be with us and help us. Lord, increase our faith, enlarge our heart. Lord, cause us to walk in the pathway of your commandments. Lord, make us understand your word. And Lord, give to us a zeal and a desire to obey you in all things. And it is in Christ's name that we pray, amen.